Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. No matter how hard you try, you can't stop us now. Hey everybody, really cool episode for you. Ricardo Pupata, founder of AskMan.com, is on the show. Uh, it's really interesting, talks about how AskMan started, what he's been up to, uh, talks about life, shares some funny stories, a lot of good fun. Pardon the audio, we were kind of doing the interview while people were conducting some construction, but you know, bear with us, enjoy the show. So Rick, seems uh, kind of formal. It's weird, eh? It doesn't have to be formal. This, this is Casa Pupada. This is a palace, by the way. It's a great house. You pick here. You pick properly. You. So here's what I want to know, Rick. Why did I have to bully you to go to the Euro? Why did you have to bully me? Yeah. Um, I think it's uh, a bit of the uh, a bit of the guilt that you always have when you when you have commitments and you always want to feel like. You got to lead by example, right? So, uh, getting bullied to go to a final of a Euro is something that, in, in normal circumstances, most people don't need to be convinced. But uh, I'll say I, I just needed a slight nudge. Didn't take didn't take much, but uh, uh, part of it was just thinking, you know, are you going to travel halfway across the world to support your team and put your heart into it at uh, expense, at uh, at emotional expense? And then uh, see us pull a 2004 and lose against uh, against uh, a team that uh, we we thought we should uh, we should beat. In this case, I was pretty convinced we could beat France. It was time. I remember when you had a bit of doubt about going, when you told me that there was a chance that you could get the opportunity to go to the final, see your team, and I told you that if you don't go, we're never working together again. Mm. Can't that convinced me for sure. Yeah. That, was, that, was a, that was a tipping point. I said, "I can't, I can't have this on my conscience." So, uh, you know, yeah, that's such a that's such a big thing that the year alone, just being at a game in the year, but you have the chance to see your own team go to the finals. And pause, like I knew it, like I told you, there was that feeling that they were going to win. This was theirs, and to miss out, even if they would lose, how do you miss that? You know, it's it's funny you say that because in 2004 I went to nine matches. Um, you were at the Euro 2004? Yeah, I was at the Euro. I went to nine matches, two of the Portugal ones, and then um, I didn't go to the game, but I had that famous Portugal-England penalties where the goalie stays with his hands yeah. and he takes a final shot. And I was thinking, when they went to the final against Greece, I, I wasn't convinced they were going to win. Because even then, I said, I should have gone on the plane. I mean, how many times are you going to see your home team? Especially because, and I say this to everyone, why it affects me more than most is I go to the qualification games. I go when they're playing Andorra and Liechtenstein. Um, I follow, not every, just every two or every four years, I follow everything. Yeah, I follow too. every day, I know you're the same. I read uh, about 15 different sites uh, every night when I go home, um, from The Guardian to Spanish newspapers to Portuguese. So uh, it means a lot more to me. So when the team, uh, uh, in 2004, when, when it, it was the final, I didn't quite have the same feeling I had this time. And like I said to you, at the very least, you will hear, I don't know how often you hear it, maybe every time you meet a Portuguese person you hear it, 
but you certainly the ghosts of 2004 have been uh, put the rest. I, I, I would hear it all the time. They would yeah. always bring it up. Frankly, Pantelis, we can make this whole podcast about it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> after we could be here for, for the next couple of hours. No, no, so here's the thing, Rick. You're an interesting guy. Uh, I'm very proud to call you a friend of mine. You're a cool dude. But there's a lot of stuff I don't know about you. Like, you, you founded, you're one of the founders of askman.com. Yeah. Okay. My big question, how did you even think about that? You, you're the trendiest dresser I know. This is, everybody knows this. Everybody who knows you is aware of this. But were you at a point in your life where you're like, you know what? This guy's dressed like an asshole. Let me teach him how to dress. Let's make a website. Was that how, like, how did you guys think uh, of I, that? I don't know if you, if you guessed or you, you had a little bit of background, but that's exactly is that how right? it um, You know, it's a story I've told many, many times um, over the years. Uh, and it all came, you have to understand that in, in the 90s when the internet was starting, um, it was an absolute craze. I mean, it's, it's easy for us to dismiss it, but when you were in the middle of it, I mean, just if you invested, right, you would have a stock that would go public at nine, ten dollars, and by the end of the day, it would be at a hundred. I mean, imagine putting every dollar you had at nine thirty on Monday, and then by the end of the afternoon, it was worth ten times as much. Um, this is the kind of craziness that, that was going on. Um, I remember Amazon stock splitting after split, splitting so many times, and uh, the, uh, one of the analysts was, became the co-founder of Business Insider but at the time he said uh, Amazon stock is going to go to 400 it was at 279 it's going to go to 400 in um, a year it got there in three days oh. it went from 279 to 400 because he made that call it was just it was ridiculous and so in the middle of that ridiculousness uh, you know and I had been on the web since 1995 I had got on it I worked on the web for two three years did a couple projects to kind of pay off student loans um, was very, much more fascinated with the marketing of how to create traffic, how to drive people to the site. And so when I was finishing my degree in, uh, in finance, um, uh, this was like April of 1999, with uh, one of my good friends at the time, we were sitting in a coffee shop in, in downtown Montreal on, uh, on McGill, it was an old uh, Van Hook that, that was there. And we were sitting down just kind of brainstorming on what, what we want to do, we're graduating, you know, we've got to get a life, we've got to get a job, like what's the next step? And um, we were talking about real estate because uh, a lot of the great fortunes, I remember specifically at the time, referencing Trump, which I would never reference at this point going forward, <laughs> but at the time we, we referenced him as an example of, of like, you know, building up your fortune uh, through real estate. What happens when you come out of school? You're as poor as you'll ever be, yeah. right? You don't have a dime. In fact, that's the opposite. You, uh, you owe, owe money. You owe a lot of money. Mm -hmm. I owed a lot of money. Um, because I was taking my student loans and my grants and, and playing in the stock market. Uh, sometimes successfully, some, most times not. Um, and so as we were sitting down brainstorming, we saw this guy walking into the Van Hook and he was wearing a, a beautiful suit, um, tailored, you, you could tell he spent. He was well-dressed, um, you know, sometimes people wear suits like sack of potatoes, they're like ill. Yeah. This guy, like, he looked apart, had these beautiful shoes, and uh, he was there with a girl and he ended up buying his croissant or whatever, sat at the table next to us. And as we, we continued our brainstorm conversation, we looked to the side and this guy crossed his legs. And when he crossed his legs, we saw that he had white gym socks on. He ruined the whole look. Yeah, of course. So you, you say to yourself, you're spending, you know, let's say a couple thousand dollars on a suit. You got your crocodile uh, skin shoes. And then you screw it up by wearing white gym socks. And we knew that as soon as the girl that was standing next to him would look over, um, you know, she would be horrified. But sure enough, she looked over and she did one of those faces that you've seen in a horror film, like, holy fuck, what is that? Sorry, I don't know if I could swear or not. Yeah. Um, 
And uh, it was like a light bulb went on in that moment. I, I said, here's a guy who's put together, who's professional. Um, you know, he's, he's got things going on uh, upstairs, and yet there's a small little detail that just ruined um, everything, or ruined his credibility as a, I don't know, fashionista. And, you know, the idea was, why not create a site that tells guys the obvious stuff, that sometimes we think it's obvious, but there's something magical that happens when you put pen to paper, and you actually write it down. And we were young, um, yet, let's say, I'll speak for myself, I thought I, I was relatively worldly, I had traveled uh, uh, quite a bit, I read extensively, and everybody who knows me knows that I, I read constantly, I'm always like devouring information. Um, and so I said, I, I think we know enough about life, of course I was wrong because we were 23, uh, that we could put a site together that teaches other guys, younger or older, um, about how to be a man. Um, and we'll do it across how to eat, how to, how to work out, uh, how to pass job interviews, how to go on dates, um, anything and everything. And so um, I had learned how to code during my first experiments online, so I started coding the site. And I was the graphic designer. I remember I studied finance, I wasn't uh, computer science. Um, and we launched and we, I, I used a site called thestreet.com, that Jim Cramer, the crazy guy that was on CNBC. Yeah. It was his site and I used that, that sort of template as my example. And I kind of uh, looked at their source code, swapped out things. Uh, we launched and uh, the second day, um, or the first day we had like 30 people. I still don't know where they came from. The second day, we had 500 people. And that was through email blasts or text, whatever we had at the time. It wasn't text, and it was very little email. Um, and I had studied, devoured really, um, the SEO optimization of all the major uh, search engines. Google didn't exist at the time, so we're talking about the Altavistas, the Excites, the Lycos, the Yahoo's of the world. Um, and Yahoo was the big player at the time, and they had an alphabetical listing. So you, uh, if you were starting with an A, you would be listed at the top of the directory because it was a human directory, not like today. Yeah. And, and so I said, no matter what it is that we, we choose as a name, it's got to start with a name because we need to be at the top of, let's say, the men's magazine category. And uh, it's got to be short. Um, and it's got to have the word men in it so that guys kind of know what it's about. And so I took a dictionary and I, and I sat at my uh, co-founder's uh, apartment. We were having a barbecue. I took a dictionary and I literally went in in all the A's. And I started, I got to about and like aboutmen.com. Let me look it up, it was taken, and I kept going until I got to ask. I said, well, ask men. That's an interesting angle where guys ask us questions and then we answer. Whereas emails come in with more requests, we'll use that as an angle, as an inspiration to actually write pieces and, and to write articles. Uh, six letters, short to the point, went online, it was available. It was 100 bucks US at the time, which when you don't have any money, that was a lot of yeah. money uh, back then. We uh, bought the uh, domain name, started doing the coding. Uh, I wrote a bunch of the initial articles. We all kind of uh, pitched in. And uh, sometime at the beginning of September, we or end of August of 1999, we launched. Um, and I had submitted to Yahoo as, uh, as, as one of the sites to be listed in the category. And not only did they select us, but they put a, a, a kind of a designation like, like a star. And when you had a star back in the Yahoo directory, it meant that your site stood out from everybody else. And so when you landed on the category, 
the star sites were the ones that were most clicked on. So we saw our traffic just kind of take off by October, and I still don't know how, we had about 50,000 people. And because of the dot-com craze, and there was a lot of money being poured in, I mean, you heard about the investments, sort of kind of like we're seeing today with the, you know, a lot of companies are overfunded, the unicorns mm -hmm. that we're seeing. Um, it was a lot crazier back then. Like anything and anything, you said, I'm, I'm doing a, I'm creating a site that's gonna sell Raptor t-shirts in purple, and it's like, I'll give you a million dollars. I mean, that was, Kind of how yes. bad it was back, back, back then. I'm exaggerating, but... Well, I feel you. And so, in the midst of that, uh, I was working at a, at a company where um, had, had the company had just gone taken over by Hong Kong investors. And so, these business guys from, from uh, Hong Kong were flying into uh, Montreal to help uh, you know, transform the business, turn it around, put in the right structure in place. Sounds familiar, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and he heard about my site. And he brought me in a room, and I thought he was going to fire me, actually, because of all Instead oh. of firing me, he's like, I want to give you money. And I know a lot of very wealthy people in Hong Kong will also probably be interested. Can you put a business plan together? And so I put a, a business plan together um, over two weeks. I still have that home. It's a, it's a beautifully... Um, it's a beautifully done business plan that even today I could show it to you. You'll say, I can't believe you did this when you were like 21, 22. Um, and uh, it secured us an initial investment of about half a million in the US, which is about 750,000 Canadian at the time. And uh, I got to excuse the noise because uh, still construction going on in this uh, in this house. So uh, that, that's the noise you're in the background. <laughs> so with, with that initial investment, um, we were able to uh, hire a few a few people, um, set up ourselves in a in a small office about a thousand square feet. We were kind of like uh, sardines in there. We were like nine people for the longest time, um, and we had a couple lucky breaks. We, we had a, a phone call that came in from uh, MSN in our first year, which we were not even going to return. We thought it was a bullshit call. We thought it was uh, just somebody pranking us, and sure enough, it was MSN.com, which alongside Yahoo and AOL were the three biggest sites online um, long before again the Googles and the Facebooks and Snapchats and everything else and when Emerson called us they said that they wanted to do a site with us uh, a new section because we're looking for sponsorship dollars so if they were able to attract young men then they could go after um, let's say uh, uh, luxury brands uh, alcohol brands all sorts of car brands that they couldn't that were chasing the very elusive 18 to 34 year old male so they knocked on the door, they said, we love your content, you have some of the best content for men on, online at this time, do you want to do a deal? We said, of course we would. Um, and they said, great, just send us a check and we'll be on our way. And they he said, check, what do you, what do you mean check? He says, well, you know, just send us a check for $2 million <laughs> and uh, that's your sort of sponsorship fee uh, to, uh, to be on the site. And remember I, I, I said, we've got half a million dollar in investment and we had to pay salaries and everything else. And, so it was half a million in the U.S. at that, that point, of course. And uh, we went back to them and we said, uh, we are, we'd love to work with you. We could be the best partners in the world. We'll do custom content. Uh, long before everybody started talking about native content, we said, we'll do native content for you with one little wrinkle. We can't pay you anything. Um, and they accepted and uh, they ended up sending us a sweater that I still re reference it as our million dollar sweater because I'm convinced that any partner they had they would send a sweater with the MSN logo. But 
had we paid them the million dollars or not, or the two million dollars, they still would have sent us the sweater. And so that sweater has long been lost, but for a long time was hanging in our office as our million dollar sweater that had the MSN butterfly logo. And that relationship uh, was really fortuitous because all of a sudden we were anchoring um, not only a section of MSN, we ended up also anchoring a lot of the content into our health section and a couple of other sections that they wanted. They would place our content on the front page and we just saw traffic soar. And so by first year, we already had a million people coming to the site. By the second year, like if you're talking about 2001, beginning of 2001, we were already in our category where Maxim was the ruler back then, uh, much larger than GQ, we had no presence online in men's health. We were the largest site in our category, and it was nine guys in an office in, uh, in Montreal. And then we had AOL do the same, and AOL was huge. We only found out about AOL when they basically, uh, sh uh, our site went down, and, and versus the real-time stats that we get today, back then we didn't know. We had to wait, believe it or not, we had to wait until the log files were processed overnight, and you wake up at 6 a.m., and you would look and you'd see yesterday's traffic, right? right. Which Everyone who lived during those times kind of laughs at it and says, shit, that, that was how it was back in the day. And today it's with Google Analytics and everything else, it's you know, beyond instant. Um, that's how we have to work. So we have to wait a whole, call it 12 to 24 hour cycle to actually find out why our site was down for six hours. And then we, we saw by the referral laws that it was AOL and we called AOL and we said to them, you know, thank you. Thank you for, for sending all this traffic, but you crashed our site because we weren't obviously prepared, we didn't have the servers ready for it. So if you could just tell us ahead of time, or maybe if we have a partnership, um, you know, we could we could actually work together and like MSN, do custom content, uh, whatever it is that you need, what, uh, whatever kind of traffic or content you want to fuel to certain sections of your site. And so the combination of AOL and MSN allowed us to absolutely explode traffic-wise. And uh, by 2004 and five, and there was a dot-com crash, which was the best thing that could have happened to us because there was a lot of guys that were in the business that had no business being in. One of our largest competitors, and the guy that scared me the most, had received the equivalent of $25 million, which is our half a million. It was on the cover of Time Magazine, had uh, a billboard in, 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 um, in Times Square. And I remember thinking, we're screwed. Like, there's no way we can compete. So the only way for us to compete is not to and to stay small and lean and say, let's do it our way, let's try to be profitable our way. We were lucky, within 13 months, we were profitable, which at the time wasn't even cool to be to make money because you wanted to build, build, build. You wanted to carry tons of losses because the minute you actually had profit, then you had a measurable metric. So the minute you had uh, any sort of positive cash flow, somebody could then do the more traditional metrics to, to, to kind of draw out a valuation. Um, but for us, it didn't matter. You know, I was running this as a business. I said, we're going to run this the smart way so we could survive. And our competitor, the guy that got 25 million, do you know how long he lasted? 10 months. <laughs> 10 months. So we were profitable from the 13th month of operation. We stayed profitable uh, ever, ever since to the point where by the second, third year, we were doing some very, very impressive margins. And uh, when everything crashed in the dot-com world, I saw that as an opportunity to actually build our base. So with that, um, we had a lot less noise. I remember seeing specifically an editorial in Maxim where the editor, the publisher of Maxim said, um, good riddance to the internet. And when I saw that, I said, we're gonna make it. Because he basically gave up. And Maxim at the time was, a, was a really a big player 
Again, GQ and Men's Health refused to put any content online because it would cannibalize their, their, their print publication, which was really their cash cow. And so we were kind of left alone for two, three years to do our thing. And when people realized that the internet was here to stay and after people kind of got over, you know, a lot of billions of dollars were lost. Um, you know, in 2003, 2004, content came back and the, the whole expression of content is king became, um, you know, in vogue again. And by the end of 2004, we started to get a lot of uh, people circling around us because we were the largest in our category. We had a huge concentration of 18 to 34-year-old males. We didn't know any of this because we refused to pay out for all the, the measurement services like Nielsen, you know, the same guys that kind of do the TV ratings yeah. that used to charge, I, I don't know, astronomical six-figure fees. So we said, oh, no, we can't pay for it, so we don't know. And uh, we sort of had a market lead that we only found out when we started getting uh, potential uh, acquirers knocking on our door and showing us the stats saying, here's where you are and we want you to join the family. And so one of them was Playboy. Uh, Playboy was circling because Playboy was obviously suffering. And uh, I remember like any other uh, red-blooded male in his 20s thinking, whatever deal I sign with Playboy, if they are the guys that acquire us, has to include some sort of membership to the mansion. Obviously. Obviously, and of course I was, you know when they say, tell you don't meet your idols. When I, when I got to go to, to the mansion and, and, and interview, uh, Hugh Hefner years later. Needless to say, a little bit disappointed with the mansion. It's kind of fallen apart. It's kind of been in the news ever since that there's millions of dollars in renovations yeah. that are needed in the place. So it was in a kind of sad state when I was there. Was it depressing? Kind of. Um, and I didn't see any bunnies running around. I, I just saw a lot of like cracked walls and and you know toilet seats that needed to be replaced that oh, Jesus man, Christ had been used falling. and abused. The grotto had you know, kind of half-used old copper tone bottles and the towels were kind of like, you know, like towels that have been washed too many, many times. times yeah. So, you know, that was the kind of situation that, 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 that sort of came on the, the, later on. But all this to say that um, IGN was also circling. IGN had just bought Rotten Tomatoes. IGN in the gaming market was obviously number one. They were, they were doing very well. And so they saw us as a way to kind of consolidate the 18 to 34, more specifically the 25 to 34, slightly older. IGN had a younger audience. Again, our audience being slightly older allowed us to go uh, after alcohol brands, after uh, certain fashion brands, certain consumer products like grooming, like Gillette and, 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 and uh, you know, products of that sort. And so they knocked on the door and we kind of made an offer uh, we, we couldn't refuse, but you know, I've said this story a million times and, and it was Mark Jung, who was the CEO of IGN at the time, and I admire him to this day and I, I still chuckle at the story. And uh, if I ever run into him again, I'll tell him how many times I've told the story. But he, he came into our tiny little conference room, he saw our financials, was blown away, and he saw our numbers and was like, I can't believe like you guys are doing this with this tiny little team here in Montreal. Cause they had like a couple hundred people out in San Francisco. And he said to me, Rick, I love everything we've seen here. Um, we're going to make you an offer, a uh, substantial offer for you to, to join the family. And I hope you accept. Because if you don't, we're going to take that same money and we're going to set up a, a competitor to you and we will destroy you. <laughs> and he used those exact words, destroy you. Kind of, you know, like in the movies yeah. where it, it echoes in your brain. 
and uh, I was wearing this ridiculous, I'm talking about trendy, like at the time there was this trend of wearing really short ties. Oh, you were wearing a ridiculously <laughs> short tie, half, you know, I went kind of halfway up my shirt, uh, God knows how I looked like that day, um, and, uh, but I love the guys at, at IGN, I love their spirit, um, I still talk to quite a few of our uh, friends for, for kind of life. And I thought it was, it was a great opportunity, a great time, and uh, we did sell kind of early. But uh, IGN was in the midst of, of themselves going public again, themselves putting themselves on the selling block. And um, there was two big uh, players at the, at the time, Viacom, which owned Paramount and, and CBS, really big player. And then News Corp was in the midst of, of acquiring you know, MySpace and, and, and everything. everything at the time, to be, to be honest, in the score, everyone forgets there was a moment in time, like 06 to 08, the largest site in the world was MySpace and NewScore was the most powerful on, online, they were the most powerful company with the combination of, of sites that they had, us, Photobucket, Rotten Tomatoes, IGN, I mean, the list went on and on and on. So, um, got acquired by IGN, three months later I woke up, uh, got a text message saying, you are now part of News Corp. Um, and we went from being this tiny little shop independent in May to by October, part of this giant conglomerate. But for me, it was the single best thing that from a, from a career perspective that could have happened because I, it was like my MBA. I never did my MBA, but it was my MBA of life because the people that I got to, to interact with um, and and people became colleagues and mentors that today, I mean, you've kind of heard the, the list, right? The CEO of Twitter, Adam Bain, I remember specifically after everybody got acquired, we're all sitting in a table in, um, in the, the marina in San Francisco and Adam was, was sitting next to me and was just kind of like shooting the shit. Who would have imagined years later that, you know, you would have been the final candidate to be the CEO of Twitter, de facto kind of running Twitter anyways. Uh, you know, Ross, our, our boss at the time, became the CEO of, of Yahoo, uh, Peter Levinson, the president of Universal uh, today, uh, Roy Bahat, uh, which I admire to, to no end, uh, CEO of Bloomberg uh, Beta, like uh, the list is on and on. I actually made the list the other day because I was presenting to, uh, uh, to a, at a conference and just absolutely astonishing from, you know, Will Gaia who unfortunately left us but he became the, the head of uh, public relations for Instagram. Uh, when Instagram was still in their tiny, like they had just gone acquired, and so they were still small. And then he got he got promoted into a similar position at Facebook, and uh, other guys were the head of the chief marketing officer of YouTube. Like this is the the core group that I, I sort of got exposed to, and the kind of experience that very few people, specifically in Montreal, ever get. And it changed my way of thinking, it changed my mentality, it changed my approach, made me so much more strategic. And um, yeah, Asman grew after we got acquired. We, you know, tripled in revenue and you know maybe quadrupled in, in traffic. So the growth was always going to be there, um, but it maybe it wasn't necessarily accelerated by News Corp, but it gave us the confidence to go out and spend, which is kind of lessons that I still learn today. Versus just being very very conservative and saying, guys, let's not go, you know, punch above our weight. Sometimes you actually need to make a necessary investment thinking forward. And we kind of knew where we were going to go, but we knew it would take time. And, and again, this, this should be a, an echo to you because I'm repeating those lessons again today. Understanding that there are building blocks that need to be put in place when you're scaling up a business. 
but um, so it allows me to, to actually any business I would start today have not only the level of confidence but having seen the roadmap having gone through experiences even when IGN was put on this on the, on the on the block to, to sell that process at very very high level with you know some very very big players in, in the scene that that you got exposed to that you pitched to um, the exposure I got when I became SVP of IGN International and um, all of that experience working with satellite offices like you use all of that today and what it does is it gives you uh, a roadmap it gives you a bag of tricks that when you're 23 24 you just don't know and so you, today you kind of accelerate that growth and you know the success you know we've had the fifth wall in the last six months which I know we haven't talked about somebody was listening to this saying what the hell you guys you guys are off on a tangent and you're something <laughs> and an ass man thing and whatever but it's it's taking what would have taken me five six years before and just applying it and doing it in a, in a year because you're putting that process in place you're putting the structure the scale you're hiring the right people because you know that once that's in place, you, you are able to then add another layer and then another layer and another layer after that. And so that's the, the benefit of my MBA, my, my de facto MBA going through that new score experience, which I don't think we would have gotten it if we didn't get acquired because it's easy to get stuck in your own ways. And it's easy to be kind of like focused on what goes on within the four walls. When you are exposed to a, a level of thinking and um, in a, such a fast paced environment like the tech industry is, it just really changes your, your mentality. So that's that's the business side, the, the the story that we never actually got a chance to sit down and kind of go yeah. through. Did do you, do you still have any piece of Askman, or is it completely off the? Completely off. It's been, does it feel weird that it's something you started in that cafe that day, and now it's still going, but it has nothing to do with you? You know, it, it's sort of like a, a, you know when you make peace with something. Um, I was fully invested in Askman. Everybody knows that when I was in the business, I was I put my heart and passion into it and. At the end, I was sort of losing a bit of the fight, and I knew that the minute I would lose a bit of that fight, it was it, it was time. But you also have to remember, it was 15 years, 15 years of intensity. It wasn't one or two or three. Where sometimes, you know, you meet people like, oh, I'm going through a tough time at work, but it's kind of a lull of a two, three month, 15 years where I tried as much as I can to be on, and then added the the IGN international responsibilities as well. You know. Uh, a lot of things were, were, were sort of happening that I knew that it, it was it was time for me to sort of spread my wings and try something else. I'm a very loyal person, so I didn't want to do something and then just kind of give it up. If I'm in, I'm in, and I'm going to see it through. Um, but 15 years is a long time, and I felt that at, at that time, it, uh, I started seeing where the market was going, and I said, it's maybe just time for somebody else to kind of step in and, 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 uh, and give it a go. So. It was tough, that week was tough, but uh, I hate to admit this, but maybe I did it for my own uh, psychology. I, I didn't go to the site, I didn't visit. I never stepped back in the office. I see some people from the office, but I've never gone back to the office again, even though you know, we're working so close, we're just uh, you know, literally two, three blocks away. Um, I kind of put that to rest and I said, you know what? And it's, it's kind of weird, dude, because today I, I look at the site, I know it's still big and it's still, you know, attracting millions of people uh, from around the world, but you don't see it as, as, as yours anymore. It feels like it's somebody else. It feels, it feels like, like it's somebody else. You know that the history, you know the struggles, you know like this, the, the phone calls and faking it and, and yeah. people at the conference rooms and the hallways and similar stuff that we just went through and experienced that I laughed because I went through the same, the exact same thing with Ask Man. 
where we were just meeting, we'd meet in coffee shops and in bathrooms and um, and somebody would call some big advertiser and we'd put on a deep voice and, and pretend we had like, you know, a, a receptionist yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and you know, <laughs> kind of change our voice and get back on the line. It's the kind of things you do because you feel like you have to do it. And, and so those were the fun years. You know, I, we had a lot of fun years because we, I got to meet a lot of famous people. I got to travel around the world. We had offices in, in fantastic spots. I mean, there are worse places than to have to go do an office visit in London or Sydney. Um, a Sydney office uh, was absolutely spectacular. It was on a harbor with boats docked. Uh, I mean, yes, the, there were worse things in life. I absolutely, there, and there was a lot of great people that I, I, I truly missed, but once it's done, it's done. Do they still exist, those satellite offices? They do. Yeah. So it's still going strong. Uh, it's still going. I, I don't ask for details, uh, but I assume they're they're still going well. And you know, once in a while, uh, I'll see a, a news item, and so I, I assume things are things are going well. But what's your passion now? I mean, you have you have the kid now. This is different from when you were 15 years ago. You have a child. Yeah. Uh, so you got different responsibilities. I know you're into virtual reality, obviously. We're yeah. into this together. Um, I don't know, real estate, I mean, I don't know what else you get into, but it seems like you dabble in a lot, like you're experimenting. Yeah, I mean, yeah. listen, I think everybody's got their, their, their passion points, uh, and when we're young, we get to explore them, you know, a couple years ago, I got into cycling, because my knees got shot, I was playing soccer, which I love, I mean, and we talked about before, so passion points, soccer, cycling's become a huge passion uh, sport, I did it more because my doctor said, you can't run anymore. And if you do, you're 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 gonna have like a knee replacement at the age of 45, and you don't want that. But you almost and killed yourself cycling a month ago. Yeah, almost. Uh, it's been like two months, but yeah, uh, which was a, which was unfortunate, and uh, I got a little scar here. Or, it's a big, it's a big it's scar. A big scar, a nice little 15 centimeter scar that kind of remind me every day to just be careful on, on the bike. But it's a fantastic sport that I I got so passionately into that uh, I, when I took my sabbatical when I left Asmen, I got to go to the Giro d'Italia inside the race, I got to go to the Tour de France inside the race uh, with the Cannondale team and, and uh, go to uh, uh, a couple of the races including the last day at the, the Champs-Élysées in France um, and the after party with all the racers like Peter Sagan who I won is at the time, I think it was his third uh, green shirt in a row, this year he won it for the fifth year in a row and um, you know, it's it's a such a beautiful sport that I have been kind of following since I was a kid because my dad was into it, um, and uh, I love discovering the province here of Quebec. Just getting on a bike on a weekend with friends, doing sixty to hundred k, going to Portugal and, and cycling uh, on the countryside along the uh, the ocean. Uh, there's a beautiful bike path that, that that's been built uh, where where my house is and. and this beautiful place called Nazare, where the world's largest wave is, is surf. But you, you know, you, as you, you know what happens. You're young, you have passions, you have you follow a lot of things. When you get older, you start to niche out, right? Mm-hmm. And your interests start to become much more narrow because you have uh, mini you and a little little Hugo kind of running around, <laughs> and you, your time goes away, dude. There's mm-hmm. just no way to explain it. Like your time just disappears, and that's just with one. If I had a second or third. I could just imagine, I see a lot of my friends who today are trying to have that work-life balance and uh, and it's tough, it's something that, you know, I encourage everybody, I mean, it's, it's a topic of conversation constantly with me because I, I went through a period of time where I was potentially burnt out 
because I was working Saturdays, Sundays, like all day um, during Yes Mondays. And I'd come back in the office on Monday feeling like the cycle never ended. I never had a chance to recharge my batteries, which is why I'm so big on telling people today, like work, do what you need to do. And certainly um, I'm a big believer if you work hard and efficient during the week, when it's time, go home. Don't answer phone if you can't. If you, and of course, there's emergencies always and, and everything else, but unplug. Go see your family. Be with your girlfriend. Do the things that you love. You say this, but you still work tirelessly and you don't see an end to it. I actually do. I do I, you see me in the office, there's no doubt. You go in really early. Um, well, even if you have plans, if you could change them just so you could yeah. stay a bit longer, you do it. But I, I, yeah, I try to be, you know, yeah, probably one of the first to arrive, our buddy LP, the I can't beat his 5 a.m. and 6 a.m. that he does. Yeah, he's, I don't he's think he sleeps. There's a chance he's a vampire or he commits murders. <laughs> I, I don't know what I, he's doing. I think, yeah, he's, he's hiding a few uh, <laughs> bodies in the office in the meantime. Um, uh, you know, that is part of, it's a work ethic, it's also an example, right? You know, I can demand of people to put in the effort and not do it myself. But the minute I do leave the office, I'm unplugged. I, I, the minute I step outside, I'm done. I, I don't check emails necessarily, uh, you know, because it's important for me. It's important for me to actually go home. And a lot of times if I arrive home late, I only catch the last half hour, hour with Hugo because he's got to go to bed. So you got to be the moment, dude. Because if, if not, then I wake up, I leave before he wakes up or at the same time. You don't have any time, so you force yourself because life gets in the way to really be balanced. On the weekends, I try as much as I can to see my friends, to see my family, to do things I need to do. Because when I come back on Monday, I feel refreshed. There's there's that break that it's almost like having pizza every night. You might love pizza, but if you have pizza every single night, every single day, how does it get old? Right. And so it's what I encourage everybody everybody to do. But look, you you sacrifice too. Like you know, you got those. Those calls that I, you know, you take at six o'clock, and I feel for you. I do. I say, if it's up to me, I, I the if six I can take the your problem. place. It's the eleven that are the oh, problem because yeah, because the, they assume it's eight in California, so it's fine. <laughs> some selfish bastards out there, that, uh, but you know it's part of the gig, right? Yeah, you that's know? the thing. We got to do. We got to do. do what you got to do. And, and I'll be honest, um, many ways we're lucky because I have friends who are lawyers and and, uh, and accountants and a lot of people leading the industry. Yeah, they get they get paid, but holy cow, are they burned out? I mean, when one o'clock in the morning is the norm, or when eleven o'clock is the norm, regular one, two o'clocks, um, you know, we say, yeah, we work a lot, but I mean, true 80, 90 hours, yeah. and they're miserable, you know? And I sit there, and, I, I, and it goes back to the work-life box. I said, what are you doing it for? Because I could tell you something, and I could say that I was looking up by the age of 28, um, I was in a very lucky position where, when, especially when we sold Ask Men, Got interviewed. I was all over the news, and uh, you know, people were like, "You're an icon," especially because you're still relatively young. So, 28 year old success story, sold this company for millions and whatever else. And I was, I was miserable. I was depressed. When you let it go? No, I. Depressed is the wrong word. I was just disappointed. You know, the the, the midlife crisis that you yeah. do, that people talk about. People usually attain that when they're in their 40s because. What happens? You you worked all your life. You you, you try to, to do it for for at the expense of your health and the expense of me being with friends. And then you get to whatever that mountaintop is. You get the VP title and and the good salary. And, and you sit there and you're like, What was it for? What was it for? I'm no I'm not happier. I'm not happier than I was five years ago or ten years ago. But my life passed me by and I didn't appreciate it. 
And I was lucky enough, and I think it really has uh, transformed who I am today as a person, the fact that I went through that at 28. I had hit, in some ways, the top. Well, yeah, that's huge. You know, I, I, of course, there's so much more you can do. There's so much more to achieve. But, you know, I, I, I know that for a vast majority of people, I think they would have switched places with me in a heartbeat. And so when you hit that sort of peak, um, you know, uh, career-wise, recognition-wise, financially-wise, very early in your life, you say to yourself, what's next? And of course, you could aim for more. And what we're doing today is is not necessarily, for me, a pursuit of, of financial success, but a pursuit of accomplishment. What can we build? Well, yeah, because yeah. I was going to ask you that. Like, in terms of financial success, you it's not like you need more financial success, right? Do you do you feel like right now the drive is for you because things are innovating, there's virtuality, there's things you want to get into because it's so innovative, but you think you're going to reach the point where you're like, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to distance myself, you know, I'm going to be the CEO, I'm going to be the owner, but I'm going to spend my time cycling, spending time with my son because I don't need this over my head anymore, I've accomplished everything, do you yeah. think that's going to come? Well, it, it came, right? I did take a, a good year and a half off um, where I really got a preview of what retirement was going to look like. Was it nice? It was nice, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's, it's sort of like, imagine you have all these great toys and you have a backyard, but all your friends are at school and you skip school. Ah, that's a very good analogy. And so you're, you've got the great toys, you're off of school, but you're by yourself. The thing that I learned is, you know, there are very, very few people that when I had the time off to do all these great things and I did travel the world and kind of heard the, the stories and yes, I went to, to the Monaco to the Grand Prix and I, <laughs> and I went to the Champions League final and I traveled and I went to Italy and France and Portugal and I did all the things that I wanted to do, a lot of things that I wanted to do that were on my bucket list. But you come back to reality, it's like November and you're kind of sitting at home and you can't, let's say, cycle every day and, and your buddies are all working, you know, at six o'clock, I, I remember being at the park with Hugo. And I saw um, the dads, kind of dads or the moms, like drive home into the driveway. And I looked at them and I'm like, I felt jealous of them. I was like, I, don't, I didn't come from something, then come home. I've been here, I've been in the park all day playing, I've been in the pool all day. And I realized that um, it actually becomes tough. Trust me, like it's great for a month or two or three or four, but after a while, the extended, it was important to stay busy. And I was still staying busy. I was taking a lot of meetings uh, on the, you know, the, uh, the uh, angel investment side. It gave me a chance to meet a lot of companies. But there's nothing like being in the battle. And so having seen that, it's easy somebody that says, oh, I wish I was retired. I see those Freedom 55 commercials. But having seen that, there's a time and place where that is where you need to be in life. When you're young and you have energy, you have ideas, you know, you have to apply them or else you feel like it's a, you're wasting, wasting away. And you're wasting your, your, whatever talent you might have. I mean, you know, not to say I, I have all the talent in the world, but if, if I could contribute any, any small thing, I really felt like I was, I was not giving full effort. And I would go in and I would consult with friends and I would help them out and boom, it would just, I'd get into it in a heartbeat. And it, I'd sit there in front of their employees and I start drawing on the board and everyone's like, wait, you should be doing this. I'm like, no, 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 I, I love having my freedom. But um, certainly with virtual reality and augmented reality, once you, I discovered how incredible the potential was and where the market is going, and we've heard this plenty of times, like 
the parallel that I see to the, the internet, I just feel so incredibly privileged to be once again on the cusp of another technological revolution. And I really do feel like that sometimes it's, it's, it's tough because we're in it thinking that the world has adopted virtual reality, augmented reality. It's nowhere close to its absolute infancy. And so we'll be able to say to our grandkids and our kids one day, like we were there in the beginning. When this was starting, we were there. Because there are industries that we read about today when we talk about the automotive uh, uh, or the industrial revolution or the automotive revolution or, you know, to a certain extent, the, the computer revolution that started in the 60s, 70s with Hewlett Packard and everybody else. To say that we were there, in my case, sales there twice to two of the biggest changes that we'll talk about it, you know, in 100, 200, 300 yeah. years, um, you know, I feel incredibly privileged. So I'm embracing it, I'm loving it, I'm in a, come to the office just waiting to uh, what the next thing is. And, and I know we're just in the same way that the industry is in infancy, we're in, it, in our infancy, having gone through it even more so, having to teach sometimes younger guys in the office that haven't been through it, like this, I know what's to come. I know what the roadmap is going gonna, is gonna to look like. Um, and that's the that's true wisdom. You know, I could tell you, Vitalis, like when I was young, you know, I listened attentively to older people, people I've been through life, my dad, but I never understood wisdom until I understood that, like, and it happened recently where wisdom comes from seeing something before. There's a pattern, there's a repetition. Because you can say things and sound wise, but if you've experienced it, you know the nuances of a situation that you otherwise wouldn't know. And so when that situation comes up again a second time, you, you can read the signs. You know how the script is going to end. You've seen it happen. That's true wisdom. And unfortunately, it only really comes with, with age and experience. Because as I'm getting older, I, I feel myself getting dumber and dumber. More and more to learn. Do you mean because yeah, you you feel like you're staying behind while everything else is moving forward? Isn't that the natural case of things? Things will just keep moving forward while you're focused on one thing. That's everything one around aspect. you is still evolving. Absolutely, that's the absolutely one aspect. The, you know, the, the speed of change, and um, especially when it comes to technology. I think the second aspect has more to do that the older you get, the more you learn, the more you realize you, you have to learn, the, or the the more you know you don't know, right? And so. Now, I'm even more aware of what I don't know than I was when I was young. Because I thought, here's my world, and maybe like Columbus, you would look at, not Columbus, he's a terrible example, but all the other explorers said, you know, horizon, that's as far as the earth goes, and this is what I know. And when you realize there's so much more, and that the circle of knowledge that I have is limited to what I see up to the horizon, not realizing the whole world that's outside it. As I'm getting older, I recognize that there is that side. And, and so it humbles you in many ways. I approach life today um, really uh, uh, in, in, almost like a student, so that I'm always learning. I'm learning from people. I'm learning from, from how people behave. I'm learning from, from lessons of, of, of life and how to uh, do things. It's all about approach, right? And, and so in some ways, I, I kind of feel um, uh, less intelligent today than I did even 10 years ago because I, I recognize um, how little I know across so many things. And so that's, uh, that, that's when, when somebody has, I think, that kind of humbling approach to life, it allows them the, uh, the openness to, uh, to embrace more things. And so I think 
part of why I think I could learn so much from our whole experience in the VR and AR world is that I, I, I have that open mindset, knowing that I'm going into an industry that as much as I can learn about it, as long as my as much as my learning curve has been extraordinary over the last six months, there's still so much. I'm 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 a novice. And if we all take that approach, like, you know, we we we're able to uh, do so many more things with, without the arrogance that sometimes comes with people that think they know it all. Do do you feel like there's stuff you would have done differently? Or are you comfortable with where you've made it to this point? You go, you know what? If I did do it differently, maybe I wouldn't be here right now. I think about that so, all the time. You know, there's the minute that uh, like having a, a child does that to you, because you see this child and you love him with all your heart as he is today. And of course, had he been born a month before, or a year later, or three years before, whoever that version of the child, you would love him the same way. But when you when you have something in front of you and you love. It almost forgives all the mistakes you've done in your past. It gives you a, a kind of clean slate. Because like you said, had I done any other small decision any other way, this little guy wouldn't be here. Yeah. Not in this state. So therefore, it allows you to forgive whatever guilt uh, you carry. You know, and we carry it over. It's normal as human beings, and especially us. We, yeah. uh, every Mediterranean uh, I, I know like thinks the same way. We, we carry this. We're very emotional. We react. And then we have the breath. Yeah. Um, and and we know a lot of it just comes out of our, our nature or how we were raised. But ultimately, you know, I, I know people that carry a lot of regret and, and, and it kills them. You know, I was guilty of, of feeling that way. And now I'm, I'm better. Yes, I should have sold Ask Men a bit later because Ask Men was, was sold three months later for four times the price that, yeah. that they acquired us. So we kind of sit there and you say, but who am I to complain because it wasn't as if I, I wasn't already in, in, in um, incredibly privileged with the outcome that, that I had. So It's not like you knew what was going to happen. And it's not like you wouldn't give the choice. Yeah. You, you will always have regrets in life. And there's always little things that you can course correct. I think there's, you know, saying the wrong thing at a cocktail party. Um, that, that, those kind of things haunt everybody, right? <laughs> you, you know you screwed up and I've had a few of those. That's why I learned... <laughs> You know that the the whole reason I started drinking gin is is because of a couple of screw ups of, of having a little too many uh, uh, drinks and saying the wrong thing where I said I need to switch to water and uh, every time somebody offers me a drink I could tell the bartender just fill it up with water and say it's gin tonic. Um, those are kind of when you talk about lessons of life that you learn. Those are the yeah. ones you learn. Um, but regret, absolutely. There's a million and one things I could have done differently. I am absolutely an imperfect human being i have so many things that i i screwed up on in life um and you know you just try to stack the odds in your favor by doing enough good to sort of counterbalance all the, all the screw-ups and and hopefully the balance set at the end of life is, is positive you made it yeah depends depends on how you define being made well i mean because you're making I your own decisions you and say you you made I, it i feel, I feel you're like smiling every day i feel like i've made it too i feel like i'm at, I'm at a point uh where i'm happy i'm doing what i want to do i'm having fun doing it i feel like in my head that's made it you know you the reason i feel like you made it is just because you're making your own decisions like me you make nobody's telling you what to do you've decided this is what i'm gonna do i like this industry you know that's what i mean that's why i'm happy every day i get to do my comedy i had the podcast virtual reality i'm doing what i want to do yeah I don't. I never wanted to become that person that's forced yeah. to do something. Do you know what I mean? And you wake up every morning and you regret the decisions that brought you to that point. Oh. Yeah. That's terrible. It's brutal. Yeah. You know, I and I some of the most happiest people I know 
and I was like, are not uh, hyper successful. They're not not le- living in big beautiful houses. They're just happy. Yeah. I look at my family in Portugal and very very humble people. They humble me every time I come. I don't talk a lot about my work and what I do, and they don't care. They they get there. I'm just Ricardo, and you know they don't really the. It's incredibly humbling experience knowing that, and I've had scenarios where I'm with you know some Fortune 500 CEO or some celebrity that we see like on on Entertainment Tonight like four days before, and then I, I land there and they're like you know just shut up and, and peel the potatoes like the rest of us because we're yeah. eating a family dinner <laughs> and we all want to eat kind of thing, and it's yeah. like that's great. There's and and I see the the smile on their faces like I see your smile that you have all the time. I'm like that is happiness, and what I was saying earlier about. When you hit a pinnacle because you think that this is what life's about it isn't money isn't what no money is definitely not uh, some of some of the most unhappy people i know personally are coincidentally some of the wealthiest people i know that's so it, coincidence. it's coincidence it doesn't go that's what it doesn't go hand in hand yeah. money's not going to buy you happiness but just like money's not going to make you unhappy either right I, mean, I think what it does is it, it allows you to kind of reflect on more other problems yeah and, uh, instead of being caught in like how do i pay my rent at the end of the month but happiness and true happiness and, and success, you said it right. If you feel fulfilled, that's what it is. It's waking up in the morning and kind of feeling fulfilled. And sometimes you're going to have good days, bad days. Everybody you know? does it. Um, you know, some days, this, this was a, a tougher week for other reasons. Um, um, and you kind, of, you kind of wake up and like, you know, you sigh. But... Um, at the end of the line, the the feeling of accomplishment, whatever it is, feeling that you did something, that you built something, um, that you made somebody happy, uh, you know, it's too it's too big to say change the world because I think too many companies say that nowadays and they really don't mean it. But if you could have a, a small effect, um, and it could be a, a small effect in terms of, of changing uh, methodology at uh, technology that no one's ever tried some of the ideas we're working on right that we we're talking about the kind of world firsts how could you not get excited about things like that where you have a market and we could all say that was our version of going to the moon yeah you know so if anyone out there is listening to this and says you know how do i become happy because i get asked that question a lot it's doing your version of getting to the moon because that sense of accomplishment will trump any any check that you that you get and uh, I have a picture that I don't look at often. It was the day that I got the, we asked the uh, IGN to, uh, to actually print out or the, the lawyers or whoever handled the transaction, print out a, a check. You know like they do in the movies where you have that a big check. Yeah. If you see that, that day and all the guys, the, the shareholders of the company, we all looked miserable that day. We all looked, because we, we were having infighting and you know, whatever, it was a moment in time. And as a result, uh, I look at that picture, and that picture reminds me that in a day that should have been the biggest day in our lives, um, was one of the one of the worst um, that we, we had. You know, that feeling in that office that day was terrible. So, at the end of the line, do what you love, and you'll never work a day in your life. As cliched as that sounds, that's absolutely the truth, and that's what you learn. That's the time. Spoken like a legend. Hey, it's Paige Desorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.